This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we look into the traumatic roots of gang violence with Father Gregory Boyle, founder of Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles, California, the largest gang rehabilitation program in the world. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Gregory Boyle. A native of Los Angeles, Father Boyle joined the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, in 1972 and was ordained a Catholic priest in 1984. After his ordination, Father Boyle spent a year living with Christian communities in Bolivia. In 1986, he returned to Los Angeles, where he was assigned as the pastor of the Dolores Mission Church in East L.A., the poorest parish in the city. From 1992 to 2001, Father Boyle was involved in many efforts to address the poverty and gang violence in his community, eventually resulting in the establishment of the independent nonprofit Homeboy Industries, which is the largest gang intervention, rehabilitation, and reentry program in the world. He has received numerous awards for his work. In 2014, the White House named Father Boyle as a Champion of Change, and he received the 2016 Humanitarian of the Year Award from the James Beard Foundation, the National Culinary Arts Organization. Father Boyle is the author of the memoir Tattoos on the Heart, The Power of Boundless Compassion, which was a New York Times bestseller. He's just released a new book, Barking to the Choir, The Power of Radical Kinship. Father Gregory Boyle, welcome to Things Not Seen. It's good to be with you. For our listeners who are unfamiliar with where you come from and your work, I wonder if you could start out briefly describing the conditions in your parish in East L.A. and what are the challenges that you found there over the years? Well, my parish is Dolores Mission, and that's where I was pastor only for six years from 86 to 92. And at the time, it was the poorest parish in the Archdiocese of L.A., situated in the middle of two public housing projects, Pico Gardens, Aliso Village. At the time, it was the largest grouping of public housing west of the Mississippi. We had the highest concentration of gang activity in the world in my parish, eight gangs at war with each other. But I was only pastor for those six years. But during that time, I started Homeboy Industries in 1988, and we've been around now for 30 years. So whereas we began in that parish serving the members of those eight gangs. And then our next office up the block served six members of 60 gangs, 10,000 gang members in, in uh, the Hollenbeck Police Precinct area. And now we serve the whole county of L.A. There are 1,200 gangs 
and 120,000 gang members. Well, why don't you talk a little bit then about Homeboy Industries? So it started out as an organization that was just a bakery, the Homeboy Bakery, and and it's grown now, as you say, it, it encompasses the entirety of L.A. County. Describe for us what it does and what the scope of Homeboy Industries is. Well, we began our program really being kind of a job dispatcher. We would find him felony-friendly employers and dispatch uh, gang members to those jobs. And then I think what we discovered, and then we started the bakery in 1992, mainly because we couldn't find enough employers willing to hire gang members. But then beyond that, we, we discovered that though our motto said, nothing stops a bullet like a job, we, we thought, well, this this does a lot, but it doesn't do the essential thing, which is healing. And so uh, Homeboy started to kind of anchor itself in the primacy of relationship and healing. And um, so now it's uh, really a therapeutic community where people, gang members engage in attachment repair and they gain some resilience and they, they do the work is what we call it. And the work, the interior work, the work on themselves, they come to terms with what was done to them and what they've done. And then they heal, and, and it's essential healing. So it's 18 months, you know, and it's uh, recognizing that healing for all of us ends in the graveyard. But, I mean, but there's an essential fundamental healing that we talk about at Homeboy, and that's the 18 months. Well, I want to ask about that, because if we look at the history, for example, of the American welfare system, it started out as a way to care for white Un, white mothers, and then it shifted and it was demonized in the Reagan era. And one of the things that came in the Clinton era was this notion of jobs, 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 and vocational training instead of care for the people. And it seems like what you're, what you're espousing, you started out as a jobs program, and then Homeboy Industries changed to a program of healing. And first of all, what's your metric for healing? When you say 18 months and the goal is, is to heal the souls of these people, how do you think about that? Well, I don't know if it's about healing souls so much as people, you know, they come to us with a disorganized attachment. You know, mom was frightened or frightening, and you can't really calm yourself down if you've never been soothed. So they find soothing. It's interesting that they, when a child is born, they say it takes about 18 months to attach to the primary caregivers. We never thought about that. We just kind of arbitrarily came up with 18 months for the training program. So, but, but there's a kind of a parallel universe where they, they reattach, you know, and they, they come to terms and, and, and they find how compelling tenderness can be. And then previously when we would just send people to jobs, you know, well, a monkey wrench would get thrown into their lives. You know, their lady would leave them or something. And then they'd be toppled by it. They'd go right back to gangbanging. But now the world can throw at them what it will, and it will, and they're not toppled by it. That's the big difference. So it doesn't mean that healing is over, but they know the truth of who they are, that they're exactly what God had in mind when God made them. And so they inhabit that truth more fully. And now they're, they can't be toppled They've re-identified who they are in the world. That's, that's sustaining. It occurs to me that when you, you probably first had the idea for this or when those around you had the idea for this, I imagine that you encountered resistance both from members of gangs themselves, 
but also resistance from the community. And I wonder if, if you feel comfortable talking about that. What was the character of those kind of resistances that you first encountered? I don't believe we ever had resistance from gang members because they always saw Homeboy as hope. And so, but the first 10 years of our 30 years was marked by death threats, bomb threats, hate mail, none of it from gang members, but all from people who, uh, who had so solidly demonized the gang population that it was a short hop to demonize this priest who was helping them. So the friend of our enemy is our enemy. A lot of the anonymous letters, oddly enough, are, you know, I'm a LAPD or I'm a sheriff and, you know, we hate you. You're part of the problem. So, which is fascinating, you know, we don't get that anymore, but it was a steady diet of it. And that's when the demonizing was writ large, you know, where this was the enemy, wiped them out. So we've grown a lot over the years, you know, like as I mentioned about dispatching people to employment. But, but the truth is an employed gang member may or may not go back to prison, and an educated one may or may not go back to prison. But I would make an absolute total, complete guarantee that a healed gang member won't ever go back to prison. And I bet my life on that, you know. And sometimes it takes a while, just like recovery, you know, so people will relapse and they'll say it's too hard and doing the work was, is too arduous. So they, they leave us. But now it's a kind of a truism at Homeboy. Once you get a dose of Homeboy, people will be back and they always come back. So, you know, it's like hitting bottom. They, they go out and they hit bottom again. But then they'll always come back and say, can I, will you welcome me back? And Absolutely. And so it sounds like the resistance that you got was from some people who were kind of dedicated to what we might call a law and order mindset. They, they saw a problem and a solution that involved incarceration and maybe physical force against these gangs. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I mean, uh, but demonizing is always untruth. And so... You can take that to the bank, you know. And so you, so having enemies and anything that draws a line between us and them, it's artificial. It's delusional. But it was kind of that's how we handled things. You know, in L.A. we had the chief of police. Then was Daryl Gates and the it was, uh, you know, Operation Hammer. And it was round them up and lock them up. And, but that was true, you know, across the country. But you don't really hear law and order stuff. I mean, maybe we're starting to hear it again. But, but it was uh, many, many presidential debates ago. You know, last one was probably the first George Bush and Michael Dukakis when they talked about law and order. But then they stopped doing it because people started to say, well, I'd rather be smart on crime than tough. And so politicians abandoned that approach because the people got ahead of them. Do you think that it was also maybe the success? I mean, Homeboy Industries has expanded, and certainly you have had a 30-year success rate. Do you think that that also worked to change the perception of these law and order thinkers, or, or do you think that it was something else? Yeah, I think it did in Los Angeles. I can only speak for Los Angeles, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's pervasive. It, you know, there are 120,000 gang members and in L.A. County. I don't think there would be a single one who didn't know who we are, where we are, and what we do. Now, whether they come there, that's a different story. But it takes what it takes, you know. But, but there's never been hostility from, from gang members towards Homeboy. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Father Gregory Boyle, founder of Homeboy Industries, which is the largest gang intervention, rehabilitation, and reentry program in the world. We're discussing his new book, Barking to the Choir, The Power of Radical Kinship. We'll be back in a moment. Looking for signs of hope in the Chicagoland education scene? Bright Promise Fund for Urban Christian Education serves 15 schools in Chicago and nearby suburbs with scholarship funding for students and families in search of quality, faith-based educational options. Visit brightpromisefund.org to learn more about schools where students flourish. Good schools make for good neighborhoods. brightpromisefund.org. That's brightpromisefund.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Father Gregory Boyle, founder of Homeboy Industries, which is the largest gang intervention, rehabilitation, and reentry program in the world. We're discussing his new book, Barking to the Choir, The Power of Radical Kinship. In your book, Barking to the Choir, you talk about the recovery process of some of these hardened gang members. At one point, you talk about a guy named Speedy, and you talk about how he became a Christian. And the description that you made of that really stuck with me. You say, and I think someone was describing to you how Speedy became a Christian, and you said he's got a stranglehold on him. And at first when I was reading it, I thought, well, Jesus has a stranglehold on Speedy. But what instead the person was saying was, no, Speedy had a stranglehold on Jesus. You turn that in the characterization of it to begin to talk about that in terms of addiction and sort of trading one addiction for another. But I wonder if you could expand on what you meant by that. Well, I know I had asked this woman, and she, oh, I ran into, I had changed all the names. It was sure. somebody else. And, and I said, well, how he's doing? She goes, well, he found Jesus, and now he's got him in a headlock, and Jesus is turning blue, poor thing, she says, which really cracked me up. And, and that's what it was. You know, again, that's not healing. You know, I'm a big Jesus fan, but that's not healing. It's not even substituting one addiction for another. You know, Jesus would just sort of shake his head at that and say, that's not healing. Let's roll up our sleeves. Let's talk about what happened to you. Let's talk about where this came from. Let's talk about trauma and damage. And if you don't transform your pain, you're just going to keep transmitting it. And so that's what needs to happen. That's the work. The work isn't how can I embrace Jesus more. Jesus doesn't have much interest in that. You know, he really wants people to heal. And so, um, so that was the, it's actually a shallow response. It's an avoidance tactic uh, to quote the Bible and to have Jesus in a headlock and Jesus turn blue on us, rather than take a good hard look. So the homies who run the place, you know, the older guys now who've been through the program many times, some of them were relapsers who came back and now they run the place. You know, well, they'll see people, homies, get taken to that place. Okay, right now you you threw down with that guy in the parking lot because he took you to that place. And that just means you haven't been doing the work. Well, that's the hope. The hope is to get to a place where where the folks do the work, you know, where they excavate the pain and the wounds. And then they become friends with their, their wounds. You don't want to be a stranger to yourself. When you use that phrase, they, they took you to that place, Characterize for our listeners what that means. What do you mean when well, you use that Well, it's like, you know, if suddenly somebody's mad-dogging somebody or he looked at me sideways or they start fighting or they get into a verbal kind of thing, you know. I said to a homie, I said, why did you fight with him? It wasn't a fight. It was an altercation, he said. Oh, well, thank you for clarifying that. But so that's the notion, you know. And so 
the person who has done the work isn't taken to that place of anger and rage and disrespect. And they know who they are, so they can't be taken to that place. The way that I would use that in my recovery language is that they were triggered somehow. And mm-hmm. and one of the things that you talk about again and again in the book and when you when you speak is how these triggers get laid very early in the people that you deal with. But I I think that we could characterize it to say that people up and down the social strata have triggers buried in them and have had mistreatment. It's just most evident with some of the populations that you're working with. Is that a, would you feel like that's a Yeah, I, I, you know, triggers are going to happen all the time. You have no control over triggers. You only have control over allowing yourself to be triggered or allowing yourself to be taken to that place of, of rage and resentment and violence. And, but the triggering is going to happen all the time. Then you try to find, you know, how in the face of it, how do you, um, you know, maintain your equilibrium and keep yourself from taking water, you know? It seems to me like a lot of the work that you are doing at Homeboy Industries, even though it started out as a kind of job placement program, and you said this very much in our first segment, that it's shifted now to the notion of healing and recovery and it strikes me that there's no magic wand that you can wave to just heal somebody. It takes a certain amount of commitment and effort. And for our listeners who, who may be intrigued by this, I'm wondering if, if you could start to line out for us the process of, of creating the space for that healing. Well, I think there is something kind of magic, actually. I mean, the, the secret sauce is a community of tenderness. So you go, I go across the country and you hear, you know, folks are reaching out and trying to extend services to this population. And everybody has the same menu of services. But sometimes they're delivered in such a way like they're the DMV, you know. Uh, oh, you need anger management, go to window 43, you know. But we deliver all those services too. We have the same menu of anger management and classes and therapy. It's all the things you would suspect. But the difference is, the secret sauce is this, this place of a community of tenderness because the community is everything. Community will trump everything. Community will trump gang. Community will trump their chronic toxic stress. Community will trump their trauma. And so that's the thing that the homies always talk about that. When, and people who visit talk about it. Where they walk in, they go, wow, I don't know what this is. What is this? You know, you can feel it. You can see it. It's palpable. Well, that's, that's the secret sauce that they're feeling, they're experiencing. It's this palpable sense of tenderness. And, and, and it's, it's a place where people are feeling cherished. Yeah, those services are being delivered. But the problem in society is that, you know, the outsider view often drives the inside of our policy. So out, outsiders go, oh, I know what they need. They need anger management. Okay, check that box. And they need parenting because they just don't know. And they need skills because they're not very smart or equipped. No, they just need to be healed. They need to experience profound healing. And that can only happen in a community of tenderness where relationships are, are the primary source of that healing. And that's what's compelling for these folks. And while you're doing that, while you're experiencing that environment, you're, you're going to class and going to therapy and all that other stuff, too. Well, I know that you have seen hundreds, maybe thousands of examples of a person who comes from a hardened existence and then enters this community, this, this hospitality of tenderness and caring. 
and you've seen transformations. So I wonder for our listeners if, if you could give us a story or two of, of seeing someone coming from the extremity of violence and seeing the extremity of love. Uh, well, everybody is an example of that. But there's a guy uh, named Gary who's half Irish and half Mexican, and he was tough, and he was gang member of prison a long time, really quite abused as a kid. He was telling me the other day that when he and his twin brother were taken from his parents and raised by a grandmother who was just, uh, I'm going to just presume, mentally ill, every day after school she would sit them down in a hallway and put duct tape on their mouths, and they would sit there for hours, and they did the same on the weekends for one whole year until he finally ran away, and she would beat them badly. And anyway, meth addict, gang member, and and now he's... He's kind of discovered the truth of who he is at this place. He just sent me a text message. That's why he's on my mind. And he had just finished giving a tour, which he's starting to do. We get a lot of tour groups. And he said, they got the taste of the magic here, you know. And he went on and on and on. It was like this great discovery of what I was speaking of earlier, of this kind of special thing that happens there. And he had come to us, and we had said no to him because we felt he was too volatile, although we take the volatile, but we felt like he hadn't dealt with his drug issue, and he was madder in hell. So um, one of the homies called him and said, we're thinking of maybe giving you another chance, but you have to come in and drug test tomorrow. And he told him where to go and F you and take your job and shove it, and he hung up. And then he told me how he stared at the phone, and he just kept saying to the phone, call me back, call me back, call me back. And uh, 15 minutes later, the homie who works at our place, Fabian, called him back and said, let's try this again. But it was his deepest longing was to, to actually find this truth of himself, though he hung up on it initially. And now it's kind of hard to imagine him. He's just, uh, he's this new person. Well, at several points in the book, you talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. And you say, in fact, at one point in the book that in Los Angeles County, in the high poverty areas, one in three youth suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. First of all, when we use this phrase, post-traumatic stress disorder, what are we talking about? Well, every homie and homegirl who walks through our doors comes with a kind of burdened by a history of unspeakable things that have been done to them. Torture and terror and abuse of every imaginable kind. That stuff's hard to look at. In fact, all the, virtually all the drug abuse is sort of a way to numb. It's a way of self-medicating so that they don't have to look at this stuff. But, you know, you need to kind of provide a sanctuary, if you will, and that's what homeboy is. That's what the community of tenderness is. And then pretty soon these folks with their chronic toxic stress that they wear like a backpack, well, they're able to take it off and find relief. And, and they don't have to live in survivor brain anymore. And then in that sanctuary, suddenly they start to become the sanctuary that they sought there. And then they go home and they provide that sanctuary to their kids and suddenly you've broken a cycle. And so this is true of homeless population as it is of gang member. You know, if, if people are living in survivor brain, there's not a thing you can do. 
you know, it's one of the, part of the reasons why, and I'm not totally versed on this, but it's the uh, housing first kind of movement, you know, where you, let's give them a house first. And the idea there is to remove this notion of survivor brain, as opposed to prove yourself that you are worthy of this apartment, and then we will give it to you. It doesn't work unless they can find relief and security and safety and, and a sanctuary, then it's, not gonna, it's never going to work. So that's kind of the principle, too, at, at Homeboy. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Father Gregory Boyle. He's founder of Homeboy Industries, which is the largest gang intervention, rehabilitation, and reentry program in the world. We're discussing his new book, Barking to the Choir, The Power of Radical Kinship. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Father Gregory Boyle, founder of Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles, which is the largest gang intervention, rehabilitation, and reentry program in the world. We're discussing his new book, Barking to the Choir, The Power of Radical Kinship. Well, it occurs to me that after so many years in East L.A., 30 years working with these populations, it's entirely possible that you've been exposed to some trauma yourself. You've seen people die. You may have seen violence up close. Do you feel that you're also on a journey of recovery with, with regard to these traumas, or, or have you managed to somehow stay uh, apart from them? I, I, I imagine I know the answer, but I... No, I mean, again, healing ends in the graveyard, so I, I suspect that's when it'll end for me. But I'm definitely traumatized, especially, you know, during the decade of death, 88 to 98, and shootings morning, noon, and night. From my perch in my office now, which is all glass, I can see out. Yeah, don't run, you know. Uh, kids kids will, homies will run, and I get up out of my desk, and I call them over. Do me a favor, don't ever run in here. Because I know I'm being triggered by somebody running. What's happening is they're shooting, is somebody fighting? And we're all like that in my office. So we can be in a meeting with me and homies, a loud noise, a quick movement. We're always telling people, it's a little bit like a public swimming pool. Don't run, you know, because it, it triggers us because we're all, we all remember the days when, when you had to hunker down behind a parked car so you didn't get shot. So, you know, I, I don't do New Year's Eve, but I, I'm in bed early. But I'll tell you, at midnight I woke up and it, my heart was in my throat because in my community where I live, it's, people are shooting. And it just brought back all those times. I was kind of surprised by it. What that reminds me of is... You know, my, my children, who are now eight and six, they have learned that when they stand behind me, they need to say, Papa, I'm behind you. And, there, you know, there's, there's just things that can, can be dangerous, you yeah. know, for me, if I get startled suddenly and those kinds of things. So mm-hmm. 
you know, I, I wonder sometimes how that affects my children. The fact that I'm open and honest about the places where I'm broken. I hope that it, I, I mean, growing up with my parents, they never showed me their brokenness. And I never saw their flaw. I saw their flaws all the time, but they never admitted their flaws. And I, I, I wonder sometimes if I overadmit my flaws, but I hope that my children are getting some kind of lesson about what it means for an adult to try and live in the world when they're in pain. And, and for me, reading your book, Barking to the Choir, and reading your earlier book, Tattoos on the Heart, you are so full of these kinds of stories. And so I, I just want to say, first of all, I appreciate you trusting me by telling me a little bit about how this has affected you. Mm-hmm. And thank you for that. Oh, sure. When you are speaking to crowds of middle class or upper class white people, which I imagine since you speak 200 days a year or more, you probably speak to a lot of rooms like that. How do you help to get these crowds to see the reality of what you have seen yourself? Is it easy to build that bridge or is it difficult to build that bridge with with crowds who are privileged? I think it's easier now, you know, because people, you have to tell stories. If you don't tell stories, if you're not making them laugh, they're not listening. But if you tell stories, people are right there with you. Every once in a while, in between stories, you slip in content and poetry and a kind of a thought. But don't dwell there because you got to get to the story again fast. Otherwise, you lose them. And so, you know, I've sort of learned that over the years. But people like stories. People connect to stories. And Buddhists will talk about Buddha nature. You know, everybody's got Buddha nature, which is the same way of saying we're created in the image and likeness of God. That's who we are. And we're all born wanting the same things, joy, happiness, peace. That's what we all want. Everybody. Even folks who have done horrific things. They were all born wanting the same thing. Something happened. Terrible things happened to them. So you want people to connect to the fact that we're all the same. We all have Buddha nature. We all have God right in us. And nobody's waiting for us to become good. That's the truth of who we are. So you want to be able to just... What's getting in the way of you seeing your thorough, unstoppable, unshakable goodness? What's keeping you from seeing that? That's the truth. You don't have to rise to it. You don't have to one day arrive at it or become it. That's who you are. I've heard you say at one point that you've never met an evil person. For those that see the work that you do, they must be incredulous to hear you say that. How do you speak to people who can't understand the fact that you haven't yet met a person who's evil? And first of all, am I characterizing that statement correctly? Yeah, I mean... I testify in death penalty cases as a gang expert during the sentencing phase, you know. And all the prosecution wants you to say is, is you believe in evil. You know, you believe that people, are, people can be evil. But, you know, I've done this 50 times probably. You know, and you look at the defendant, some of them I've known, most of them I don't. But you can go, wow, this is a... And then you read their, their files, you know, and you go, oh, my God unspeakable things were done to this kid. And, uh, and kids shouldn't have to endure what every single person who sat there, you know, and, and facing the death penalty, every single one, no exceptions, never been an exception. Or the depth of extraordinary mental, health, mental illness. So nobody wants to hear that because then if somebody's mentally ill, what do you have to feel? You have to feel compassion. Well, nobody wants to hear that. We, they just sentenced a guy to die in L.A. who beat 
his stepson, who was eight years old, because he suspected he was gay. Beat him, tortured him, beat him to death. And then again, the jury, of course, you know, it's, uh, they very quickly, we, we provided justice for Gabriel, who was the kid who was killed. And uh, there's a special place in hell reserved for the guy who did this. And what kind of human being doesn't have the soul and the heart? To, well, what are you talking about? This is an extraordinarily damaged human being who's beyond your ability to understand uh, the mental illness. And if you say mental illness in a death penalty hearing, they freak out. Everybody freaks out because they don't want this person to be mentally ill. They want him to be evil so that we can strike the distance between us and them, and then we can execute him. And then they'll, they'll throw the egregious act in your face again. And you can't call that evil? I said, I can call that terrible, but I can't call it evil because evil is, if you designate it as evil, you're just lazy. You're not digging deep enough. And imagine God sharing your righteous view. Impossible. Because if I can see that this guy is mentally ill, imagine what God sees in terms of the hurt this guy has experienced. And imagine if as a society we saw things that way. Then we'd, we'd infuse hope to kids for whom hope is foreign. And we'd rescue folks. And we'd, we'd heal you know, the damaged. And we deliver mental health services in a timely, culturally appropriate way before they beat to death their stepson. So it doesn't make you a bleeding heart. It's, it's kind of God would never agree with you, ever, ever. And even people who, who cling to that notion, they know that. Would, would God share your view? about Charlie Manson? Well, of course not. Of course not. He's completely out of his mind. And, and he was born wanting the same things you wanted. And something happened. So how do we, how do we help people, you know? Near the end of the book, Barking to the Choir, you observe that the gang members that you work with don't think of their deaths as a waste, but they think of their lives as a waste. I see that as tremendously frustrating. And also, these are the people whom the gospel is designed to be good news for. I know that at another point in the book, you mentioned that you you preach the gospel never and always. It's similar to a phrase that you use, that you're always preaching the gospel and you're never preaching the gospel. But I wonder if you could unpack what you mean by that when you're dealing with people who, who so clearly need this good news. Well, I was in Australia and I, during a Q&A period, and somebody got up and said, when do you introduce Jesus to the gang member? And I said, immediately and never. That's the phrase I was yeah. thinking of, yeah. And uh, never and immediately, something like that. So, so the notion is, you know, you want to take seriously what Jesus took seriously. Inclusion, nonviolence, compassionate, loving kindness, and acceptance. That's how you introduce Jesus, you know. And a woman once uh, said, after hearing my talk, and she was a little annoyed at me, your stories are all well and good, but when uh, do you bring gang members to Christ? And I said, no, they bring me to Christ. So, you know, you turn this inside out, where it's trying to live as though the truth were true, trying to put first things recognizably first. You, you want to preach the gospel, 
only rarely <laughs> use words, but you basically want to... I don't wear clerical garb, and somebody at this talk earlier today, <laughs> how am I supposed to know you're a priest, you know? Are you really a priest? Because I wasn't wearing it, you know? And I don't get into that discussion, you know, because it's a... Uh, it's, you can't win, and I, you don't want to win any argument, but... But it's a similar notion, you know, I, I would, I, my longing and hope would be somehow my life might one day represent my priesthood and not this plastic white collar stuck into a black shirt. I think the clerical shirt represents clericalism, which I don't believe anybody could point to a single good thing that's come into the world because of clericalism. However, I think priests have done a lot of good. And I'm proud to be a priest. I'm trying to do my part against clericalism. But it, again, it's people are always a hammer on the nail. You know, they're kind of being very literal, and, and it's not very helpful. You, you want people to experience God and Jesus in how you treat them and not by winning the argument you know, with them. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Father Gregory Boyle, founder of Homeboy Industries in East L.A., which is the largest gang intervention, rehabilitation, and reentry program in the world. We're discussing his new book, Barking to the Choir, The Power of Radical Kinship. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash not seen radio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Father Gregory Boyle. I know that you know that here in Chicago, we have tremendous violence all through the city and not just on the South Side that often gets talked about. And a lot of that is tied to gang violence. And I'm sure you get asked this a lot. But what advice would you offer to people of faith who live here in Chicago and who may feel paralyzed by not knowing what to do to begin to address these issues? Well, I think part of the problem, many things to do, but one problem is that we disqualify ourselves. We think, you know, oh, I couldn't possibly be a beneficial presence or contribute or do something because I'm white, I've never been in a gang, I don't have any tattoos, I've never been to prison. But it's, if you're the proud owner of a pulse, you know, then you're somebody who can actually be connected to people. So it's all relational. And then if it becomes rarefied, like only former gang members can work with gang members, which is nonsense, you know, because people will say, oh, well, the gang members are more likely to listen to them. There's a movement now called Credible Messengers. And again, it's, it's, it means well. It's trying to kind of say, well, gang members should talk to gang members. And I go, well, here's the problem. It's not about message. And as long as you think it's about message, then you don't understand what this thing is. You know, it's like somebody needs to deliver this message to that kid. Do good and avoid evil. Don't you see that this will, lifestyle will lead you to prison or death? No, it's, it's not about inserting message into somebody's ear. So if the task is talking to them, then maybe only a few can do that. But fortunately for everybody, the task is receiving them, is allowing yourself to be reached by them. The task is listening to them. 
who can't do that? Everybody can. Then suddenly that democratizes the whole thing. Everybody can do this. And once you discover that everybody can, everybody ought to, because we belong to each other. But there are unhealthy things out there. You know, if people work with gangs instead of gang members, that's unhealthy. That, you know, serves the cohesion of the gang. It supplies oxygen to gang members. You don't want that. So you want to be able to understand what language the gang violence is speaking and address the lethal absence of hope that undergirds all gang violence. Some of my listeners are conservative. Some of them are evangelical. And oftentimes we hear the message from conservative evangelicals that this is a moral problem and it's an individual moral problem to try and scale it away from culture, the society. And to the extent that, that it does get talked about as a cultural problem, it's always that culture. And so I've heard you say in, in several points in this conversation that it's that distancing when we say those people over there are the problem that we really have the, the difficulty I'm nearly certain with the amount of speaking that you do, you must have had people who come and challenge you on exactly these sorts of questions. So the, these are just bad people. These are the, This is a moral problem. If these people would simply make better choices. First of all, am I, am I characterizing it correctly that you do get challenged by that? And if you do, how do you respond? Well, I always say not all choices are created equal. So I grew up in the gang capital of the world, Los Angeles, California. But I won all these lotteries, you know, the parent lottery, the sibling lottery, the educational opportunity lottery, the jobs every year, every summer lottery, the neighborhood lottery, the zip code lottery. I I just won every single mental health lottery. I won all those lotteries. So how absurd to kind of say, I chose not to be in a gang, you know, crazy, because there was no chance that I, I wouldn't have known how to find a gang if you sent me on a scavenger hunt. But I'd stand in awe at what the treacherous waters that kids have to navigate in the community where I currently live. It's just jaw-dropping, you know, what they have to deal with and the abuse and the trauma and the deprivation and the neglect. And I, I, that's why it's so easy for me to, to just admire them because I think, wow, in my entire 63 years of living, I, I've never had to carry what any of these little kids have to carry. And you just go, whoa. I, I was at somewhere, and a, a chief of police was handing me some brochure. It's one of those brochures they hand out to parents. You know, here's how the telltale signs that your kid is gravitating perilously close to gang involvement. And it does all these things, and it says the number one reason why kids join gangs and the reason was excitement in big, bold letters. And I thought if I were to compile a list of 200 reasons, excitement wouldn't even be on the list. But that's, again, that's the outsider view, the judging this. But as he handed me the brochures, we're just trying to help parents teach their kids to make better choices. I go, whoa, that's a really bad diagnosis. And nobody's ever met a, a bad diagnosis that led to a good treatment plan. That's never happened. So get the diagnosis right. So morality has exactly zero to do with this, as odd as that may seem. It doesn't have anything to do with it. It's not about good and evil. It's not about right and wrong. It's about how do we level the playing field and how do we help kids 
and, and everybody is born wanting the same things. And when stuff goes off the rails, how, do, how can we be helpful rather than judgmental? You know, how can we After stand 30 in years, awe? what is it that still frustrates you? Well, I'm always frustrated that it's difficult to pay our bills and meet payroll. I hate that part. That keeps me awake. You know, somebody just paid whatever the heck, $460 million for a Da Vinci. I'm glad they found it. I'm, I'm sure it's worthy. But, wow, what I couldn't do with $5 million of that. If we were a shelter for abandoned puppies, we'd be endowed for the rest of our lives. But we deal with human beings who are scary sometimes and, and who have had to carry more than I've ever had to carry. And yet it's a struggle to fund that. That stuff is always frustrating to me. After 30 years, what is it that keeps you hopeful? Well, if you can stay anchored in the present moment and to the person right in front of you, then you can stay delighting. And so you're, you're never, you know, lamenting what you should have done yesterday. And you're not anxious about what will happen tomorrow. You're right here. And so that's easy to do with the homies because uh, if you can allow tenderness to propel you into and keep you in the present moment, then you're, you're saved in the present moment, you know. You know, we're not waiting to get into heaven. Uh, heaven is waiting to get into us, and that happens right here and now in this present moment. It can't happen any other time. So that's key, you know, and so as long as you do that, you're never depleted by the work. You're only enriched. Well, Father Gregory Boyle, you're a conduit for these amazing stories, and when I read your books, I had tears. When I've heard you speak, I have tears. You have managed to touch so many people, and you've certainly touched me. I I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking time to speak with me and with, with my listeners today. Thank you, David. We're speaking today with Father Gregory Boyle, founder of Homeboy Industries in East L.A., which is the largest gang intervention, rehabilitation, and reentry program in the world. His new book is Barking to the Choir, The Power of Radical Kinship. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijin. It's made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.